the last two Sunday mornings, we've looked at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. We continue with that theme this morning from John 20, verses 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you again this week, separated from each other geographically, but bound together by the power of your Spirit, bound together this morning in worship. We bow before you as we have for years. Every Lord's Day morning, we bow before you as a congregation of priests and we bring before you our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors, our friends. We thank you, Father, for the birth of Anna Kate Creekmore. We thank you for her safe delivery and we pray that you would continue to bless her and give her health. Bless Rachel in her recovery. Keep her from any complications. We pray again this morning for Peggy Bauer. Father, we pray that you would bring her relief from this pain. Hasten the day when she'll be able to have treatment that will permanently renew that or will permanently do away with that pain. We pray for Grady McDonald. Father, strengthen his body. Give him strength to walk. Strength to move about. Give him patience. 
Our Father, we pray for Juanita Birch. We pray that you would bless her spiritually. Father, she knows what has happened. And we pray, our Father, that you would strengthen her heart, strengthen her soul, cause her to look forward with anticipation. For you have a place prepared for her. Teach all of us to look forward no matter our age. Teach us to look forward without fear, with great anticipation. For you have prepared a place. Our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs today, that you would strengthen him. We thank you for the physical strength you've given him. We pray that you would continue to give him strength. Father, bless him spiritually. Strengthen him on the inside. Our Father, we pray that you would protect our congregation, our families from this awful virus. Father, thank you for how you've kept us safe. We pray that you would continue to bless. We ask that, Father, you would continue to bless Tony Hunt as he recovers from this infection. Cause these antibiotics to be effective. Keep him from any complications. We pray, our Father, that you would provide for our families during this special time. We pray that you would prosper every home, every family, and whatever they put their hands unto, and bless. Hasten the day when we'll be together again in this sanctuary. And now we pray. In this unusual time, as we're separated and we're sitting in our homes this morning, watching, listening, worshiping, praying, we bow before you now and we ask that you would open your word to us. As always, we know that John Sartell cannot teach, cannot preach, so that it will make any difference in our lives. No person who stands behind that holy desk can do that. It's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we're changed from the inside out, that we continue to grow in Christ. And so once more this morning, we ask our Father as your children that you would teach us, teach us this morning, Father, for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What is your Jesus allowed to do? What words do you associate with the disciple Thomas? All of us know. Doubt, unbelief, skepticism, doubting Thomas. That's become a cliche. Sometimes we look at a fellow Christian who is questioning in some way and we say, you are being a doubting Thomas. This morning, I want us to rethink what we've always heard about Thomas and associate it and associate with him some new terminology. First, we must say that Thomas was no different than any of the other disciples. For the last two Sundays, we have seen 
that not one of Jesus' disciples thought that he would come out of the tomb. Now think about that for a minute. Not one of those 11 men expected him to come out of that tomb. None of the women were expecting to see him again. None. Not one. So how was Thomas any different than Peter or John or Matthew or James or Andrew? He wasn't. They were all doubters. They were all unbelievers. John the baptizer suffered from the same doubts. He was the first man recorded in the Gospels to look at Jesus as an adult and say, there's the Messiah. Remember, he pointed to his own followers as Jesus came by and said, look there, see that man? He's the Lamb of God. Yet, this same John the baptizer, when he landed in Herod's prison and was facing death, what did he do? He had two of his disciples, two of his followers, go to Jesus to ask Jesus a question. And what was the question? Are you the one? It's in Luke 9 or Luke 7, 19. Are you the one who is coming or shall we look for another? John was doubting. John was thinking, if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, if he is the coming king, if I am his ambassador, what am I doing in jail? Why am I about to die at the hands of Herod? You see, Thomas was not unique in his doubting. As we read the Gospels, the first word we should associate with Thomas is courageous. In John eleven sixteen, 16, we read, Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. That was a statement of bravery. Let me explain. Jesus had recently been, the week before, he had been in Jerusalem, and a crowd had taken up stones to kill him. He had been claiming deity, and they wanted to arrest him, to stone him for his blasphemy. But before they could arrest him, he escaped into the countryside, into the hinterland. He went to the east side of the Jordan to be alone with his disciples. While he was there, he received word that his friend Lazarus was sick, very sick. After a two-day delay, Jesus announced to his disciples that he would travel to see Lazarus and Mary and Martha in Bethany. Now his disciples said, no, you, you can't do that. Don't you remember it's just a few days ago that they tried to stone you in Jerusalem. They tried to arrest you. 
Now, Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slopes, the Mount of Olives. So it was right there. But Jesus was resolute in his decision. The disciples were resisting. And it was Thomas that stepped forth and said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Maybe he was just being obstinate, but at least he was being faithful to follow Jesus. It would take courage to return to that area around Jerusalem. He was loyal. He was courageous. He was also persistent as a disciple. After Jesus left the Passover meal in the upper room, after the Lord's Supper was initiated, John records a lengthy time of teaching and conversation that took place as the disciples were walking with Jesus to Gethsemane. Jesus told the disciples as they walked that he would be leaving. Now this was disturbing. They had been constant companions for almost three years. They were disturbed. And Jesus speaks words of comfort to them. In John 14, 1 through 3, we know those words. Most of us know those words by heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he added, and you know the way to where I am going. The ever faithful Thomas, who had been ready to return to Jerusalem and die with him, now became inquisitive because he still wanted to follow Jesus. He didn't understand this leaving business. So in the fifth verse, we read, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? If we are to follow you, how can we do that if we don't know the way? He was not asking this question in defiance. He was asking this question because he genuinely wanted to be loyal to his pledge to follow Jesus. How can we know the way? So in these two scenes, we see that Thomas was loyal and courageous. He was loyal and persistent. But sadly, Thomas became a disciple whose hope was crushed. I have a question. After the crucifixion, what had the two disciples, we've talked about this before, those two disciples that were leaving dejected after the crucifixion, the two disciples that it was actually on the morning of the resurrection. They were on their road, they were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus falls in with them. And they began to talk about what had happened. They don't recognize Jesus. And they said this in Luke 24, 21. But we had hoped, now these were two disciples. 
but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Past tense. Their hope was dead. We had hope. We don't hope that anymore. Hope is no more. It had been proven he was not the one to redeem Israel. He had been killed. Now, this is the way all the disciples thought. This is the way Thomas thought. This disciple who had been loyal, courageous, persistent. You know, maybe the reason he was not in the upper room when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples after the resurrection, maybe it was simply that he was not sticking around the cemetery after the funeral was over. He was out of there. There was no use remaining with the other disciples. The glue that held them together was dead. Jesus was dead. Their hope was dead. The one they thought was the Messiah was dead. Thomas personified what was wrong with all the disciples. For three years, Thomas had been trying to make Jesus into the Messiah that he wanted him to be. In the title of the sermon today, I ask all of us a question. What is your Jesus allowed to do? What do you allow your Jesus to say and do? Thomas would not allow his Messiah to die an ignoble death on a Roman cross. No, that, that couldn't happen. My Messiah can't do that. Now, Thomas and the other disciples understood the great major teaching in the first part of the ministry of Jesus. In that first year, with all the miracles, when Jesus had finally given them a test, who do you say that I am? They had said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They got that right. A triple plus on that exam. Immediately, right then and there, Jesus began to tell them what he had come to do. They understood who he was now. Now they had to understand what he had come to do. And he tells them. On the, in that very same scene in Matthew 16, 22. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. How, how did the disciples respond? Oh, did they say, oh, yes, yes, Jesus, we know all about that. We heard it from Isaiah. Isaiah told us that the Messiah would come and die for our sins. No, you know that's not what they said. No, their Messiah had to take the throne of David in Jerusalem and drive out the Romans and build Israel into a world-dominating nation. Look how these disciples responded. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Did you hear that? Did you hear it? Peter had just confessed 
You are the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. You're the Son of the living God. You are the living God. And what does he do? He takes him aside to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever, this can't happen, that this should ever happen to you. Their Messiah would never die on a Roman cross. David was a great warrior king. David was not killed in battle. He was not killed by some heathen king. The son of David, the Messiah, would be greater than even David. Peter and Thomas's Messiah had to take the throne in Jerusalem and reign in great victory. It was literally outside their frame of reference that their Messiah was to die on a cross. But you say, John, Jesus told them over and over and over again that he would die and be raised from the dead. Yes, he did. He did say that over and over again. But their concept of their Messiah was ingrained into their very being. For three years, they looked forward to the day that he would go to Jerusalem, publicly declare himself, and take his rightful place. And his rightful place would be a throne, not a cross. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on that donkey, when Jesus was making his official declaration that he was the Messiah of Israel, Thomas was thinking, the time has come. A cross? A cross was offensive to them. It was a place of degradation, a place of shame. It was a place for criminals. Look through their eyes as this happened. Look through their minds. When Jesus was arrested, when he was mocked and beaten bloody, when Jesus was nailed to those bloody cross beams of degradation and humiliation, Thomas, the loyal and courageous follower, the loyal and persistent disciple, was absolutely crushed to the core. Jesus, Jesus had not lived up to being the Messiah Thomas wanted. Thomas no longer believed. The Messiah was only a pretender. His Messiah had been destroyed. Thomas was crushed. What was it he had said to the disciples when they said they had seen Jesus? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, then he said these four words, I will never believe. He was adamant. He had believed once. He would not go down that road again. Dead men don't come back from a crucifixion. Stop for a minute. I want to ask you another question. What crushed Thomas? 
You see, at the very moment that Thomas and the other disciples despaired, Jesus was actually being the Messiah foretold by Isaiah and the prophets. He was being the Messiah, the Savior, planned from the foundation of the world. A great victory was actually being won. They saw him losing. They saw him a failure. Why? Because their idea of a Messiah was different than God's actual plan for the Messiah. The irony is they were not crushed because Jesus failed. They were crushed because they had projected their own false expectations for Messiah on Jesus. At the very moment, they thought all was lost. The greatest victory in the history of the world was actually being won. Let's pretend. Let's pretend we track down Thomas while Jesus is being crucified or just after he died. We asked Thomas his view of what had happened. He would have said that Calvary and the cross was the battlefield where all was lost. Jesus failed to be the great Messiah of Israel. But then, if we tracked him down after the resurrection and after Pentecost, he would have shouted with tears and laughter. He would have shouted with laughter at Calvary. Calvary, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, fulfilled all the sacrifices ever offered in Israel. He would have shouted, he was the Lamb of God on the cross taking the sins of His people for all time. He would have shouted at Calvary. He smashed and crushed the power of sin and Satan. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, what he had thought was the worst day of his life became the greatest day for him in human history. What changed? What changed? Jesus did not change. His mission did not change. God did not change. Thomas' view of what the Messiah had come to do had changed completely. He finally understood what had happened. Thomas had made Jesus into the Messiah that Thomas wanted him to be. Now, all of us have tried to do that. This is the reason I'm preaching this message. We've all done this. We like our lives the way they are. We don't want change. We don't want a Jesus who will turn our lives upside down. We can say it this way. We want a Jesus, but we don't want our lives turned upside down. For instance, we want Jesus, but we still want to be able to hate our enemies. We want Jesus, but at the same time, we want to keep our addictions. 
We want Jesus, but we want to keep our adulteries. When I was in seminary, I was taught by many professors who no longer believed in the cardinal doctrines of the gospel, the cardinal doctrines of Scripture. They still wanted Jesus. They talked in a very positive way about many things that Jesus said and did. <clears throat> but in their minds, God did not become flesh. In their minds, Jesus could not be the incarnate Son of God who made the blind to see and the deaf to hear, who raised the dead. Not all of us are like that in some form. We want a Jesus who conforms to our way of looking at things. Every person listening to me right now, every person including this preacher, we've tried to make Jesus conform to our way of looking at money, to our way of looking at sex, to our way of looking at success, to our way of looking at race, to our way of looking at marriage. We want a Jesus who sanctions our lifestyle, who baptizes the way we live. Sadly, a grieving mother said to me, I prayed to God that he would save my daughter from this sickness. If he really was God, he would have cared. If he really was God, he would have loved me. He would have saved her. If he loved me, he would have saved her. What was she doing? She was projecting her own self-centered ideas about who God is and what he should do. She would, could not have a God who would allow her daughter to die. Why did God say through Paul in Romans 8.28, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a comforting verse. But why did he put that there? He knew that sometimes when bad things happened in his providence, we would be tempted to say, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. No, he was saying... When things get really dark, when things got really get really dark, even that, even then, all things will work together for the good of my children who are called according to my purpose and my providence. He said that because he knew we would sometimes be tempted to place our expectations on of God on situations where we would not really understand his true purpose. So I ask you this morning, what would you let your Jesus do? We would try to change a God of great providence into a God doing our bidding. That's what Thomas was doing. When Jesus appeared to the gathered disciples a second time, Thomas was there. Jesus knew what he had said 
And it wasn't in a sarcastic way, in a very comforting way. He faced Thomas immediately. And he said, Thomas, Thomas, touch the scar in my hand. Thomas, touch the scar in my side. Thomas didn't need to touch those scars. He responded in amazement. My Lord, my God. Right there, Thomas set out on a new venture. He had been trying to conform his Jesus to his life and his way of thinking. Now he would be conforming to Jesus. By the way, when Thomas said, my Lord, and then added, my God, it was the first time in the Gospels that Jesus was personally addressed as God. Now, he had claimed deity. Peter had called him in his confession the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But it fell to Thomas to look at him and say for the first time that it's recorded with the disciples, my God. That statement, I think, is much deeper and has more meaning than we know, particularly with Thomas. Thomas had gone from trying to make Jesus be the Messiah that he wanted him to be to manipulating the sovereignty of God, manipulating the problems of God. He had gone from there to recognize Jesus was the immutable, the unchangeable God, the unchangeable God who would give himself for Thomas' salvation. He realized now that it was Thomas that had to change and be changed, not Jesus. There's a story I love. It's not a true story. I first read it in a book about leadership. It must have been 25 or 30 years ago. When I first read it, the author actually passed the story off as being true. I later read that it was not and actually had been told numerous times over the last hundred years in different situations all along the seacoast of this country. But as a story. It clearly illustrates the point of this message. This is a transcript of a dialogue, of a conversation between a U.S. naval convoy and the Canadian authorities. The convoy was somewhere off the coast of Canada in the North Atlantic. The U.S. convoy, the Americans, radioed, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadian authorities responded, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The Americans responded, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians came back. No, I say again, you divert your course. Then the Americans responded 
adamantly. This is the aircraft carrier, USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and, and numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Our countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians responded. Sir, this is a lighthouse on a very rocky and solid shoreline. Your call. People, battleships don't demand a continent to change course. That's exactly what Thomas was doing. Jesus, you must change course. Sometimes we think we are smarter and larger than God. And we put stipulations on God Almighty. When we do that, when we do that, we are apt to be like Thomas and crash in despair because we have collided with his sovereign, immutable plan. Because we have collided with a sovereign, immutable, almighty God. Amen. Our closing hymn is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. What an appropriate hymn to sing. But before we do that, I want to give a benediction this morning to you and your home, to all of us, to the entire congregation, wherever we are. Look up and receive God's benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside